Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Turn in your book of Psalms to Psalm 77, Song 77 of the Psalter, entitled our sermon this morning, Poor Me, Psalm 77. Max Lucado says it is the heroine of the emotions. It is the angel dust of the spirit. It is the cocaine of the soul. Injected into our system with the intentions of recovery, it has the capacity to kill. It's available and alluring, and its dealers and users are often Christians. The name of the drug is pity. No one dependent upon pity ever intended to get that way. The first experiment with the drug is usually a legitimate problem, a sickness, a cancer, a cold, a broken leg. Or perhaps it was to weather a crisis, a death, a divorce, a bankruptcy. Whatever the cause, the treatment is the same. Well-meaning friends come and they treat us with pity kind words, sympathetic gestures, empathetic tears, and most of the time, the treatment has the positive results. Healing occurs, we pick ourselves up, and we continue on with our lives, our dreams, and our hopes. There are times, however, when this pity becomes habit-forming. The attention and compassion feel good. The sudden flood of love and warmth gives us some type of high. Well-intentioned friends inject our veins with kindness, fill our room with the smoke of understanding. And it feels nice, really nice. My, it feels nice. In fact, it's it's been a while since we've experienced such warmth and sympathy. And so instead of getting back up on our feet, we allow ourselves to ease into this addiction of enjoying pity. Mo motivation wanes. Creativity disappears. Initiative exits. Paralysis enters. We love the process of healing so much that we don't really, deep down, want to get healed. Instead of getting better, we convince ourselves, no, now we're worse. In time, we become pity junkies, don't we? We thrive on the compassion and care of others. We become masters of reciting our woes and will gladly retell the whole story to anyone who will sit once again and listen. We bear our wounds to all who pass by, begging for a sympathetic touch. As is true with all drugs, each dose of pity is less effective and Soon the pity from others is not enough, so we manufacture our own pity for our own system. We convince ourselves that we are the victim of everyone and everything. 
Our parents didn't raise us rightly. Our boss doesn't respect us. And society just expects too much of me. Nobody loves me and everybody hates me. And I think I'll just eat some worms, we say in our spirit. For those who follow this cycle to its end, there is one clear, only one predictable end. It is anger. We become angry. We become so efficient at convincing ourselves that we are victimized by the world and victimized by our family. The only logical reaction is we are angry inside. Angry at the world and angry at our family and angry at the church, angry at society, angry at God. In the end, self-pity can paralyze us to the point that we become useless. Useless to ourselves and useless to our family and useless to our church and community. The problem with this drug of self-pity is that we're all susceptible to it at some time, aren't we? We all have the potential to be self-pityers because we all have problems. Eventually, we will. Tragedy strikes. Oftentimes, loving, caring friends, the church, they come and support us, and they well should, they better. We all need that kind of comfort to pick us up, set us back on our feet, to move forward again. And yet there's those times and there are those folks who don't want to get up and they don't want to move on with life. We begin to enjoy this attention, this comfort, this sympathy, this pity. Begin to enjoy telling our story over and over again to the listening ears around us. And now we search out only for the friends who will hear our story again. It becomes an ugly scene. People needing people to further their victim mentality. We become pity junkies inside. We become so focused on ourselves. We come to the 77th song of the Psalter and we find a pity junkie, don't we? I want us to look at this song and notice some things. Self-pity is not anything new. There's just enough injustice. There's just enough unfairness. There's just enough disappointment and hurt in all of our lives that we all have the raw material to fall into what the psalmist experiences if we want to. I want us to notice, first of all, about self-pity, and that is it often deals with the facts. Self-pity often deals with the facts. He really does have a nicer car than I do. That woman really does have a more understanding, caring husband than you do. Her metabolism really is faster, and she doesn't have to watch what she eats at all. He really isn't the worker that we are, and yet we were passed right over, and he got the promotion. Yes, the facts are not in dispute. The wife that he really loved for 52 years did just die. The woman in her 40s, her husband, really did walk out for a younger secretary. There's no doubt about it. Self-pity often, no, I would say most often, deals accurately with the facts. There really is a death in the family. There really is a divorce, a diagnosis of cancer, a hardship. 
there is something that causes us to pick up that germ, the self-pity. Eugene Peterson has noted the antidote to this self-pity virus is over-drugging ourselves with ourselves. is found in Psalm 77. It is the antidote of prayer. Look at verses 1 and 2. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God. He's praying and he will hear me. And the day of my trouble I sought in the Lord. And the night of my hand was stretched out without weariness. But look at this. My soul refused to be comforted. The psalmist at the beginning of the song doesn't want to get well. The second thing I want you to notice about pity is this. It allows no balm to heal. It allows nothing to make us better. The psalmist cries out, he refuses to get better. My soul refused to be comforted. I'm enjoying the, the attention. I'm enjoying the sorrow. I'm wallowing in my worries like a, a pig in the mud. I don't really want to get well. Notice verses 3 and 4. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Thou hast held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Even the sleepiness of the psalmist, the fact that he can't get rest at night. He says, God, at night, you're holding my eyelids open. You won't even let me sleep. And now his state of insomnia is God's fault. Yes, pity allows no bomb to heal. There's a third thing we see. It's accusing. It's accusing, isn't it? God, you are the one that keeps me up at night. It's your fault I'm not sleeping. Whenever we want to feel sorry for ourselves, we always find an object for our anger. And when no one else will do, often the default recipient of our anger is God himself, the one responsible for our trouble and our hardships. Self-pity. Someone else is always to blame for our unhappiness. Someone has robbed us of our joy. Someone has literally rained on our parade. When no one else is handy, God will always step in and receive our anger. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. Self-pity grovels in nostalgia. It grovels in nostalgia. Look at verse 5. I've considered the days of old. Oh, back in the good old days, we might hear, when things were good, the problem with the good old days, the 50 years ago when the grass was always greener is, number one, nobody can decide exactly when those good old days were. You see, we have a little bit of amnesia. We forget the difficulties and the challenges of the, the good old days. And when you ask folks to get on a bus to go back to the good old days, they're only willing to go if they can take their car, their thermostat, and their computer with them, or they're not willing to go. The good old days, we say. The psalmist says, I remember when it used to be good, and it's not good anymore. The good old days. 
We focus on the past and we interpret the past as being better than it ever really was. If only she had not died, I could have meaning to my life again. If only he didn't leave me, there wasn't divorce, then I could have life again. If only I had my old job back in my old place. If only I hadn't changed jobs. We come up with this unending series of if onlys. If only, if only, if only, if only. Self-pity is a very shabby historian, isn't it? It gets stuck in history and the way things used to be, or at least the way things used to be in our own mind. Now that we look back and filter out all the problems of yesterday. When you find yourself wallowing in self-pity, you're so fixated on the past that you cannot live victoriously today, much less look to the future tomorrow for any grace of God. Yes, self-pity grovels and nostalgia. Here's a fifth thing I, I want you to notice about the psalmist as he grovels in his own self-pity. That is, it's exactly that. It is morbidly introspective. It is morbidly introspective. It's about I, me, myself, first-person pronouns. I want you to look at these. Look at verse 1. My voice raises to God, and I will cry aloud my voice again, and he will hear me. Look how many first-person pronouns there in that one verse. I count six. Look at verse 2. My trouble, I sought, my hand, my soul. Verse 3. When I remembered, then I, when I sigh, my spirit grows faint. Verse 4. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered. I will remember my song. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Verses 1 through 6 are only about me, myself, and I. It's a song he's singing to God, and yet he's made himself the subject of the song. When you and I find ourselves paralyzed by pity, we too become focused not so much on God upward, but rather we look inward. We're too busy focusing on ourselves. Look at verse 6. I will remember my song in the night, and I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Self-pity sometimes crosses the line. The self-meditating on the self is a room without air, without oxygen, left there long enough, breathing our own gases. It becomes sickening, does it not? Here's a, a sixth thing I want you to notice about self-pity, and that is it's not a good theologian. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject for forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Dare he say what he's about to say? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has his anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said in my grief, the right hand of the Most High has changed. We come to what is the climax of the self-pitying section of this song, and he begins to say, God isn't who God used to be. Will God forever not be favorable? Has God's love left me? Are his promises at an end of all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious in his anger? Has God shut up compassion? Self-pity doesn't make for good theology, does it? Even those of us with a first grade level of good theology know that God saves and God redeems and God creates and the psalmist has twisted his own image of God by focusing on himself. And then verse 10, of all verses, he says, God, God's different. The Most High has changed. The Jerusalem Bible translates it this way. Then I said, this is what distresses me, that the power of the Most High is no longer what it used to be. Or the New English Bible reads this way. Has God's right hand, I said, has it lost its strength? Does it hang powerless? The arm of the Most High, has he lost his strength? God, the psalmist learned, cannot be presumed upon for a particular pattern of behavior. Self-pity doesn't allow us to see a God who is good and gracious and steadfast and powerful and sure. When we focus each of us on ourselves, what we end up with is a broken God and a broken self. God's right arm. Is it in a cast, the psalmist is saying? I'm not seeing the power there anymore. When we use too much, I, me, my, myself, we end up not only with a, a broken self, but with a, a broken, paralyzed, impotent vision of God. Some of us here this morning or some watching by way of television, you've made no progress in your life because you don't really want to make progress in your life. You're stuck in the past. And when a scab begins to form over whatever hurts you, you quickly scrape it off and show everyone, look, I'm still bleeding. It's not over. It's still here. I can't focus on God yet. The psalmist, in so focusing on self and his disappointment with God, has a broken theology, and God is not good. And he dares say it, that God has actually forgotten to be gracious. Somewhere around verse 10, when he calls God ungracious and the God with the broken arm, he realizes he is at the end of a very bad road. The road of self-focus won't work. And all of a sudden, thank God, the song changes in verse 11, and God becomes good again. Notice how it changes. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. God's broken arm is healed. The second part of the psalm, 
goes from 11 to 20, equally as long as the first part. He gets over his self-pity, and he remembers who God really is. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Thy way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known the strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob, and Joseph, the psalm takes a turn. And now the I, the me, and the my has turned to the thee and the thou. Now it's about God, isn't it? Look at verse 14. You, you, or thou, thou. 15, thou, or you. And 16, thee, or you again. Here's how we, we move past our self-pity. First of all, we have to stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on God. We have to stop self-focusing and start God-focusing, do we not? That's what the psalmist does. All of a sudden, he changes from talking about himself, and now he's talking about a powerful, a good, and a gracious God. You know, there's probably only our generation probably started around the 1990s. We're probably the only people in the history of Christendom to ever think worship is about us. Someone might say, well, you know, I didn't get anything out of it. Well, we weren't intending for you to get anything out of it. We were intending for you to put something in it. You see the difference? You were to focus not on yourself and how the song makes you feel, does the song say that God is holy? Does the song say that God is creator? Does the song say that God is just, that he saves, that he redeems, and that he sustains his people? We might be the only generation that thinks that worship was really supposed to make us feel a certain way. Yeah, we can only lose our self-pity when we start focusing on God. Notice what he says two times in verse 11. I shall remember. I shall remember. So secondly, we have to not only change our focus from ourselves to God, but secondly, we have to remember. And then thirdly, verse 16 and following, we have to realize that God cannot be controlled. Verse 16 and following, we have a sort of a creation scene. We have watery chaos, and out of that watery chaos, God makes something emerge. It's a creation. There's thunder and lightning and a, a whirlwind all around. The earth trembles and shakes, verse 18. But God, God is good because we realize thirdly that God cannot and will not be controlled. We have to move past our victimization, our wallowing, our loathing, our pity, our hopelessness. 
We have to stop focusing on a selective memory of the past and allow God to take us right in our brokenness wherever we are, whoever we are. We take the broken pieces at our hand from our sin, the sins of others, however we got where we are, and we go to God not with the past but only with the present, looking to the future through the grace, forgiveness, and the power of God. If your theology has focused on yourself, you have an awfully small God. He's silent, unable, inept. It's time for all of us to begin to think like the psalmist. Maybe we came today thinking like the psalmist, wallowing in the past. And maybe we entered this room with a soul that refused to be comforted. And maybe now we join the psalmist in declaring the powerful works of God. And maybe now we remember and we stop focusing on ourselves. We focus them on God. It's time for some of us to move out of the infirmary and into the park once again. It's time. It's time the psalmist declares to move on. It's time to cease the language of poor me. It's time to stop blaming others, and it's time to focus on God. It's in our hearts that we come and we worship him. Not wonder how it will make us better. It's time to remember all the great things that God has done for us and to get up and to dare walk again. No, to dare run again. Let us pray. Oh God, I've done it. We've all done it. Self is the easiest thing, the most natural thing in the world to focus on. In our fallenness, we've become thus. God, I know there's real hurt, and I'm not belittling anybody's hurt, and there's real loss and real death and real divorce and real diagnosis that isn't good. I, I, I know all that. I don't minimize any of that. But somewhere in the midst of all of our pain, our hurt, and our suffering, may we join the psalmists and remember that you are a God who has no broken arm, that you are a God of power and majesty and holiness and might. You are a God who is jealous and requires our attention be moved from the self to you, from creation to creator. We sing about how you brought forth what is out of the watery chaos that was. In the name of Jesus, we pray.